I read all the best Bitcoin content out there so that you can listen. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read with Guy Swan. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the Crypto Economy with Guy Swan. That is me, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are ending the year with a quick read. And this is one that I've been sitting on for a really long time. This was actually from November 30th of 2017. Uh, but I never covered it. And it's something that uh, I think is a really interesting take or um, thought experiment on how the future of Bitcoin will play out, like the major changes that we know are part of the protocol. And this is by Rusty Russell, who is, you know, an amazing developer. I'm sure most of you know who he is. Um, I'll have the links to all of this stuff in the show notes. But without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our read. The Three Economic Eras of Bitcoin by Rusty Russell. The way the Bitcoin ecosystem will play out is written in the mathematics of its consensus rules. We should all know the three phases it will go through. The first era, Satoshi's free offer, 2009 to 2014. In the early years of Bitcoin, it was obscure and unvaluable. Demand was so tiny you could send any amount for free. There was no real congestion, so software didn't handle it, nor did business plans. Gambling service Satoshi Dice famously sent a one Satoshi payment to losing bets using the infinite capacity blockchain as a signaling layer. It was all free money. Bitcoin was a new, barely understood technology. It was hard enough to comprehend the interactions of its constituent parts, let alone extrapolate to what this would mean in the future. Several factors made this worse. 1. The pseudonymity and lack of central authority was deeply attractive to scammers, who became pervasive enough to make the permeation of real information extremely difficult and also led to widespread distrust. 2. The success of the system brought others who tried to replicate it, often with the main goal of simply generating money, and almost always with minimal understanding of the system. And three, the early adopters had not only the normal tribalism of an emerging clique, but a concrete financial self-interest in adoption. The resulting boosterism meant that it was extremely difficult for any awkward facts to permeate the wider ecosystem. The result there was surprisingly low awareness that this phase of, quote, free money was not the natural state of Bitcoin. The developers were aware, so added some configurable settings in the reference client to minimize the worst abuses. These rules did not change Bitcoin, just the default behavior. They added a minimum fee, stopped relaying tiny payments, and enhanced the scripting language to reduce the size taken up by unspent outputs. The Second Era, Satoshi's Subsidy, We Are Here. Quote, Bitcoin is shifting to a new economic policy with possibly higher fees, end quote. Jeff Garzik. 
The bursty statistical nature of block production, combined with the volatile market of Bitcoin, began to produce intermittent capacity issues. These had been previously dealt with by code optimizations and tweaking settings by miners. Now they became more regular and significant, causing rising awareness that the first era was at risk. Inevitably, many people wanted to prolong the free ride. This pressure was exacerbated by software and services unprepared for dynamic fee conditions, and the difficult nature of such fee conditions themselves. Reliably guessing what fee would allow a transaction into the next block turned out to be difficult at best and extremely difficult to present to users. The developers' general reluctance to support a naive increase stemmed from several factors. One, previous increases on the network had driven significant centralization pressure, including a period where over half the network was under control of a single pool. Two, this would be the first backwards incompatible change since Bitcoin's introduction. Three, providing a quote one-off bump risks moral hazard as lobbying for expansion is seen as cheaper and easier than engineering improvements. Four, despite being expected, neither software nor services were preparing for the transition. This may have been because they didn't really believe the transition would occur. Five, the developers generally want to follow the community, not lead. Changes which are economically significant or contentious feed a narrative of developer reliance. Six, transitions in a large, complex system need to be as gradual as possible to avoid unintended side effects. As the third era approaches, the second era provides that gradual transition, with time for software and services to gain experience with Bitcoin, as it will eventually be. The developers implemented several improvements to address congestion. First among them was wide-ranging and significant optimizations designed to handle the network now running at capacity. Block propagation was improved by a global network of node relays and new strategies for better propagation. Fee estimation algorithms became more sophisticated, along with restoring the ability to replace transactions by increasing the fee and having the recipient boost transactions. Despite centralization fears of larger blocks, an opt-in block expansion was added, which will eventually double the network throughput as software is updated to use it. Work is ongoing on packing more transactions into blocks, which increases throughput without the centralization risks of block expansion. It's not surprising that such efforts were seen for what they were, insufficient to maintain the first era. Bitcoin's use as a payment network, always awkward due to block time variance, became even harder. A whole class of payments below $20 were no longer viable. Businesses and users established in the first era began looking longingly at alternative coins still in their own first era, and also lobbied for relief. A significant mining monopoly had formed at this stage, and it joined the efforts. Though these efforts failed, it's important to note that while some who wanted the first era to continue considered the third era avoidable, many just felt it shouldn't happen now. The most convincing argument was that it would harm adoption, which is a major factor for both usefulness and regulatory resistance. 
Unfortunately, this argument never becomes less compelling and carries all the hazards enumerated above. It is undeniable that an increase in transaction capacity reduces the eventual burden of fees and is the main motivation for the growth plans which were implemented in this era. The third era, self-sufficiency, 2028 onwards? Quote, Once a predetermined number of coins have entered circulation, the incentive can transition entirely to transaction fees and be completely inflation-free. End quote. Satoshi Nakamoto, Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system. Once the free money bootstrap phases of Bitcoin are complete, the system enters the phase of self-sufficiency, where users bear the cost of securing the network against double spending, currently billions of U.S. dollars each year. This is phased in by halving the block subsidy every four years. Current levels suggest fees will be comparable with the subsidy at the 2024 halving and consistently dominate from 2028 onwards. User-facing businesses established in the first era who flourished into the second era will find the third era extremely difficult. One large business claims to be responsible for 25% of the Bitcoin transactions. In 10 years, they would be paying $700 million per year to secure the network at current levels. Yet, no business is telling their investors about this impending cost, nor that they plan on reducing their on-chain percentage, nor suggesting that they are depending on significant Bitcoin appreciation to offset these costs. Miners will find the third era equally difficult. Directly supported by users, they will be in constant tension with them over fee levels and in danger of having their income squeezed by large businesses or cliques of users. This may lead to further centralization as miners consolidate under revenue pressure. This centralization may be offset by businesses choosing to invest directly in mining, however. The third era will start with civil war. The mathematics of this situation seem inevitable. The miners and businesses with large transaction volume will both decide to reintroduce inflation. For the large volume businesses, this will externalize their costs, and for miners, it's simply free money. The battle lines will be similar to the early second era New York Agreement, but this effort will be more nuanced and far broader with mainstream arguments such as 1. The founder was not an economist. Economists recommend inflation around 1% to encourage spending. 2. The support burden of the network should be shared by the wealthy Bitcoin holders, not just those actually using their Bitcoin. The counter-arguments are 1. The 21 million Bitcoin limit was a key reason for Bitcoin's success. 2. The system's founder made a conscious and deliberate choice for Bitcoin to be a store of value over subsidizing payments by eschewing inflation. And three, changing the rules now is stealing from early adopters, notably, but not mainly, the anonymous founder. The main resistance to this change would come from the developers themselves, who feel this limit is non-negotiable and long-term Bitcoin holders. 
businesses will be divided. Those which cater to the latter, insurers and vaults, will be against the change, and those with high on-chain volume, exchanges and wallet providers, will be for it. Although this crisis is entirely predictable from first principles and laid in the bedrock of Bitcoin, it may yield surprising results. And even if Bitcoin's supply remains capped, the drama it can produce is limitless. And that concludes The Three Economic Eras of Bitcoin by Rusty Russell. So let's go ahead and jump to our sponsor, and then we will get into some commentary on this piece. All right, so uh, I just actually went looking through this one. I knew I had read this piece a couple of times, but I could not remember if I'd actually done an episode on it. And like an idiot, I didn't bother to check before I started reading it again. So uh, we're actually going to turn this into a reboot because I actually want to publish this. And I don't remember what I said last time. Um, But this is one of those pieces that uh, it really deserves a reboot. So um, because this is one of those things like, and it's such a powerful element of the Bitcoin system is that we know what the future is going to hold for us. The The fact that these this system, the design of this and the decentralization of this network uh, makes it so resistant to change and, and that that is its attribute, like that's its, uh, that's its most valuable characteristic, is that we can see where we're headed. We know if this thing continues to be sound money, we know the end result. We know the hard decisions that we're going to have to make in the future. And it, and it really shines a light on why, why the decisions were made when they were made and why the pressures and tensions that arose were basically inevitable. Like, like it's an inescapable. We are going to have to go through this process again. And those those difficult trade-offs were going to have to be made sooner or later. And that really goes to show the difference between the philosophy or the, the engineering mindset between the developers of Bitcoin, the developers who are following and trying to adhere to the consensus rules of Bitcoin and work within that reality, and those that think that changing the consensus rules is just arbitrary and we're just going to push the can down the road or kick the can down the road, but that uh, like I love the he, he knocks out these six main points and I want to go through them again of uh, why a naive block size increase was something very undesirable um, and I know we've covered this topic a lot but I think coming around with the new year and the fact that we are going to go through this again there's going to be another civil war we're going to have this battle again that it's there's no time in which these won't be relevant. I think these decisions and trade-offs are a, um, a fundamental part of uh, keeping Bitcoin what it is, of keeping the consensus rules and the monetary policy uh, immutable uh, beyond anything short of total and utter failure and proof of total and utter failure, not just uh, speculation or maybe it's going to be bad or worse than it is right now. Um, uh, that there's always a solution within the consensus rules. But uh, let's go ahead and hit those points first. So, one, previous increases on the network had driven significant centralization pressure, including a period where over half the network was under control of a single pool. I think he's referring to a ghash.io 
io if i'm not mistaken that's the only one that i know of um that uh, in which that occurred um uh two this would be the first backwards incompatible change since bitcoin's introduction and we'll come back to that in just a second three providing a one-off bump makes moral hazard as lobbying for expansion is seen as cheaper and easier than engineering improvements and this one is really really important i think this one is highly underappreciated as something that's very very important to keeping uh keeping bitcoin honest i guess maybe is a, uh, a, a genuine um keeping it secure keeping it safe from uh, arbitrary changes to the monetary policy number three is incredibly important in my opinion and i'll go into a little bit more as to why i think that uh four despite being expected Neither software nor services were preparing for the transition. This may have been because they didn't really believe the transition would occur. Five, the developers generally want to follow the community, not lead. Changes which are economically significant or contentious feed a narrative of developer reliance. And six, Transitions in a large, complex system need to be as gradual as possible to avoid unintended side effects. As the third era approaches, the second era provides that gradual transition, with time for software and services to gain experience with Bitcoin, as it will eventually be. So I think six and three are tied very closely together. Uh, a, the, the problems of moral hazard, and B, is the fact that we shouldn't be fighting over the second era. We should already be preparing for the third era. Everything that we do, if we can't make the hard decision now, why on earth would we make it when it gets harder? It's going to be more difficult down the road. And that's where, like, the one-off bump is such an incredible moral hazard. It's like saying... I'm going to cheat on my girlfriend while we're still just girlfriends, but when we get married, then it will be different. No, you either hold to the 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 principle or you don't. There's no like there's no like special time where it gets easier to make a hard decision. And in fact, like when we're talking about somebody with or a project with a BCH or BSV or something, when that decision eventually has to be made, it's going to be vastly easier when you're talking about a few billion dollars invested versus a few trillion dollars. Being able to make the, the difficult decision and uh, basically uh, ruin the expectations of everyone you have led to believe uh, can expect endlessly low fees, that's an, in, that's an inescapable truth that's going to go away. And it doesn't matter how big your block size is because you will never have uh, – it, it's – Basic economics, if the supply is limitless, the price, there will never be a price. And that's essentially what is constantly being kicked down the road here. The can that's being kicked is the idea that the supply of transaction space is going to be whatever we need at any given time. And therefore, there will never be fee pressures. And if we get used to having no fees whatsoever for 20 years and think this thing's going to grow and be successful during that. Now, just turning on one day that, oh, yeah, by the way, now we're going to have really high fees, and you're going to have to treat the blockchain, you're going to have to treat this incredibly secure global public resource differently than you have been for 20 years. All of this infrastructure that you've done, well, now we're going to have to 
adjust it for an entirely new reality. Yes, we saw this coming, and yes, we could have given you 12 years to prepare and made the hard decision when it was a whole lot easier and there were a whole few, a uh, lot fewer people invested in this massive economic system. But no, we're going to instead pretend that when the decision is easier to make, we'll just wait until it's 10 times harder and then, then, then it will be okay. Then we'll do the right thing. Then we'll hold to the principles and then we'll be all about immutability just sometime in the distant future. And that's, what's, that's the problem with this whole mindset is that you've given up already. And Bitcoin is the one, is the single project that has not done that. Hard forks, the, the, the core value of the entire system is that it is decentralized, that it is incredibly difficult to change because it is decentralized. So a hard fork for particularly for what is just a socially easy decision, what was simply the less contentious way to go, um, or I guess the, the scapegoat, it's the easy way out of a temporary problem, uh, is to just kick the can down the road and we'll, we'll deal with that problem when, it, you know, we'll deal that problem next year or the year after that, um, is that a, any, any sort of hard fork, particularly for such an unimportant decision that will have to be made in the future that's inescapable is is basically admission of defeat is is it's 100% a demonstration that the monetary policy that the consensus rules are not what govern the network that this is just a centralized group determining what the rules are whenever it's politically and socially viable to like whatever those socially viable rules are and we've done nothing. We've solved no major problem. The, we've turned into the same political social mess that we came from. Bitcoin is a, a powerful technology in the sense that it, is, it doesn't rely on that, that it can stay uh, unchanged in spite of that an incredible contention. And understand, it's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. If you are really upset by the contentious nature about the drama, I'd love the last line in this, in fact, I'm going to highlight this right now, is that even if Bitcoin's supply remains capped, the drama it can produce is limitless. And that is absolute truth, is particularly because its supply remains capped, it's going to produce an unbelievable amount of argument, of, of shifting, it's going to force pressures into a market that will become complacent. They always do. Uh, and this is what happened before, is they were used to using Bitcoin a certain way and did not, and refused, refused to change in the face of the Bitcoin system and decided instead, no, we're going to force the change on Bitcoin. And it didn't work out. And it infuriates people that they have to change their ideas of Bitcoin rather than Bitcoin having to change to their ideas. And that's what's happening. Bitcoin was resistant. Bitcoin... Um, Honey Badger don't care. Like it just Bitcoin is Bitcoin, and the fact that you have expectations as to what it's going to be uh, does not mean anything. And that's very unfortunate for people who think that's just how it's going to work. That because I like Bitcoin for this one very thing, uh, that you know we're just going to get angry and blame it on. And this, uh, always looking for a scapegoat is like who's responsible let's point it at blockstream let's point it at reddit our bitcoin and just 
one stupid thing after the other when the reality is they were not able to change Bitcoin even though they wanted to. That's the simple truth of everything that occurred here. And the very unfortunate but inescapable reality is that we're going to go through all this all over again. In 8 to 10 years, we're going to have the same problem a whole nother time. And we're going to have to go through the same thing with lightning. Lightning fees are going to increase. In fact, there's a great article in Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, I'll probably, maybe I'll hit it before the end of the week. Um, but talking about a paper uh, that was released, and I have some, I haven't gotten through the whole paper yet. I only read like the first two pages. It's like 20 odd pages. Um, but it's a really interesting paper about uh, fees, uh, routing, about how to make the Lightning Network sustainable and how fees are too low. And then the the trade-offs versus uh, sort of the, um, the lack of privacy in some of the Lightning payments and uh, how that essentially needs to be addressed. But it's a really good discussion. It's, it's one of those, another one of those hard truths where we're used to it working a certain way, but these things are going to change. These are natural, open environments, and we are going to forever have to continue to come up with new solutions for lower-cost payments. But because we have this open, global, decentralized, permissionless protocol to work with, those solutions are possible. But it's going to be more difficult to actually engineer the next layer or the next solution, to come up with novel solutions to this, rather than the naive, let's just break the consensus rules, let's just give up on the immutability of this protocol, and uh, we'll just... It, we'll we'll do the difficult thing later and we'll do the easy thing now. It's just not going to happen that way. And and we saw this with number four. And, and this was one of those things that like people, like developers, the community, everybody had been talking about fees and talking about how the um uh the fee uh estimation like things in wallets were terrible. In fact, you'll regularly see, you know, big blockers like B cashers or whoever I'm talking about how uh, at the peak of 2017, uh, fees spiked up to like $50 per transaction. And what's funny is this is a perfect example of number four. Again, number number four was despite being expected, neither software nor services were preparing for the transition. This may have been because they didn't really believe the transition would occur. And that that $50 per transaction fee, which really wasn't that, it was um, that whole, that fee was a total outlier. I think it was really probably around 10 or like $12 reasonably for um, uh, not even like normal transactions. I never paid. I was, I was transacting through all of this and yes, the mempool was huge, but there were never, the fees were never that. It's just a, all that is, is the trying to cherry pick the worst possible example to exaggerate the problem. But that said, fees were very high and there were times where I was like, I'm just going to wait on this one. So, and of, of course, that's an inescapable reality. We are going to get there at some point in the future. So, uh, I maybe expecting $50 fees uh, for that amount of block space in the future isn't even unreasonable. Maybe that is a reality we have to deal with. But the, the reason that one actually happened uh, or that fees got ba that bad during the 2017 bubble is explicitly because all of our fee algorithms were garbage. No one was improving them. The wallet software was still using default um, uh, stuff. I remember uh, uh, Jameson Lop, I believe, had a paper or, or like wrote a piece 
I'll see if I can't find that maybe, but uh, I wrote something or, or detailed something out about uh, the uh, the how bad the fee estimations were and how they were using uh, what was it they were using? I think they were they weren't using the active mempool. They were using oh, I'm gonna screw it up. I'm not gonna remember the exact details, but essentially. I remember after reading and I was like, oh God, that's really bad. Like, like even just like normal thinking, you'd be like, all right, I want to see how much is in the mempool right this moment. Um, what was the average that got into the previous block? Um, uh, how much, like there's a, there's a handful of things. Uh, what's the traffic coming in? What's the current rate of new transactions? Um, like there's a lot of things you you would want to account for. And essentially they were accounting for almost none of it. They were doing like one very standard like basic measurement and in doing so a lot of wallets and services exchanges were crazy overestimating the fees and then there was this race happening to like because fees were overestimated over here well then the people on the other side were overestimating to account for the over already overestimated fees it was a perfect example of how nobody was prepared for fees to increase at all and they spiked out of control because all of our calculations for it were garbage. Nobody was preparing for the fact that this was going to be an issue at some point. And that's despite the fact that all of this was completely obvious that we were going to get here. And so with the third economic era, we're going to have the same problem. Is that, again, if we're just kicking the can down the road, at some point we have to build and prepare for the fact that... This is going to be sound money. There will not be an inflation rate one day, and this will have to survive off aggregated economic activity. This will have to survive off of fees, and the level of security we get will be based on how well we create a market for those fees. It's a whole lot better to make mistakes when you're a $100 billion market than it is to make mistakes when you're a $10 trillion market. So figure it out. Now, build an engineer for the future 20 years out, right this moment. Start now knowing what is going to be the eventual reality of this system. And I don't see anyone else doing that other than Bitcoin. This is why I continually, I am a Bitcoin maximalist only because I continually to, I continue to judge it by a set of principles that I think are critical to, the, to designing these systems. I have no actual attachment to Bitcoin as a brand name. I just want this thing to work, and I want it to solve the most important problem it is designed to solve, which is sound money. And if we give up on that, if we can't face a couple of hard truths or some social pressure or somebody calling us names on Twitter to, to get to that goal, well, then we're not going to get there. So bite the bullet now. Let's make the hard decisions. Let's plan for 20 years out when we are going to have to run this thing entirely off fees so that we can have sound money because we were, all, we were ready a decade ahead of time. And that's what I want Bitcoin to be. And that's why I am still here and uh, uh, still so excited about this because I think we can do it. I think we can. And I think this is the right engineering mindset. And these are the right choices. And going into 2020... Uh, that's that's where I am. I'm still as excited as I ever have been. And I think we've made the right choices up to this point. We've made the 
We, we've dealt with the right hard truths early enough that, that we're headed in the right direction. And uh, with that, let's just go ahead and close this one out. A huge thank you to Rusty Russell. Uh, thank you to everybody who's actually listened to this piece already and listened to me uh, uh, commentate on it for you know 15 or 20 minutes um, uh, back in episode 100 and something. Uh, I can't remember. But again, this is a great one to reboot and uh, uh, should be fun to lead us into 2020. Uh, happy New Year, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This is The Crypto Economy, and I am Guy Swan. Uh, I love you all, and I will catch you on the next one. Take it easy, guys.